0: Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And then also in John chapter 4, John chapter 4. And verse 24, John chapter 4, verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Amen. Now if we will turn into the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, page 921, I'll read section 1 and 2. There is but one only, living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Section 2, God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made nor deriving any glory from them but only manifesting his own glory in by unto and upon them he is the alone fountain of all being of whom through whom and to whom are all things and hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature. Whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. Amen. Well, I want to talk tonight about the attributes of God, the being and the attributes of God. I'll talk about the Trinity, God willing, next uh, Lord's Day evening. But tonight, I want to talk about the being of God, the attributes of God. Now, if you're joining us here tonight uh, for the first time, uh, we are studying uh, foundational truths as they're set forth in the Westminster Confession of Faith. We're hoping uh, to later this year, late in this year, uh, nominate and elect some elders and deacons. And uh, we want to, uh, one, make sure that we know what the standards require because those who are nominated need to be able to confess that they adhere to the Westminster Standards. We also want to use this as a time of training as well within our church that uh, we would all become more familiar with the Westminster Standards and the doctrines they teach. So tonight, uh, we're going to study the being and the attributes of God. I'm getting a lot of help tonight from Dr. Doug Kelly. He's a retired systematic theology professor at uh, RTS, many years in Jackson, and then he moved to Charlotte campus uh, there. So let's talk about the attributes of God. First of all, the attributes of God are not to be separate from each other, Or from the essence of God, the attributes of God, that is those qualities that are are, uh, a part of God's being are not to be separated from each other, nor from the very essence of who God is. God is expressed in his attributes and they all, all the attributes of God are in perfect harmony with one another. None of the attributes of God are in competition with another attribute. So, for example, God's mercy is in perfect harmony with God's infinite wrath. God's mercy is in perfect harmony with God's justice. They, to use the language of the psalmist, they kiss his righteousness and mercy, particularly in God himself and in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Love and justice work perfectly together. It's a theological error that we have to be alert to when we emphasize one attribute at the expense of another. So, for example, sometimes some of your maybe mainline churches will want to emphasize God as love. Well, God is love. The Bible says that quite plainly. God is love. God is infinite in his love. But God is also infinitely holy. God is infinitely just. So you can't hold to the attribute of God's love at the expense of the holiness of God. God's ethical requirements uh, are are standing. It's not loving uh, to go against what God in his word says are, for example, sexual ethics. People say, well, then you're not being loving if you do not Uh, allow for uh, uh, various forms of adultery. You're not being loving uh, if you don't allow two men to marry. You're not being loving uh, if you do not allow for a couple who is unmarried to have relations with one another. God's love and justice and righteousness come together perfectly in God. We cannot elevate one attribute and ignore others or under. Uh, value others. In addition to the attributes of God, the Lord, uh, the Bible teaches that the Lord is one. We uh, read this, for example, in Deuteronomy in what is known as the Shema. uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Shema means hear, hearken, hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. Uh, This is referred to as the simplicity of God. God is is not divided within himself. He's not the sum of various parts. God is indivisible. He is one. He is not the sum of all his attributes. He's not part wisdom, part power, part justice, part love, part mercy, and you add them all up and you get God. Um, Cornelius Van Til tells us, that we must be careful not to forget the simplicity of God in his being. God cannot be divided. God is love. God is holiness. God is righteousness. Now, unlike man um, who is not in, in harmony with himself because of sin, God is in perfect harmony within his own being. Romans chapter 7 says that the members of ourselves are at war with the Spirit of God in our lives. So Paul says we do the things we do not want to do. Wretched men that we are, who will save us from this body of death, Paul says. But that's not the way it is with God. Uh, God is in perfect harmony within himself. Now, God's attributes can be divided into two parts. One is his incommunicable attributes, and the other is the communicable attributes. Incommunicable, like it sounds, in or in, usually means the negative of, non, of. Uh, Incommunicable means that these are attributes that cannot be communicated to the creature. They are not analogous within the creature. So, for example, um, we read in the Confession here where God is not dependent upon any creature uh, for anything within uh, his, with any need that he has, God has no needs, and so this is, for example, the doctrine of aseity. A s e i t y, aseity. This would be an an incommunicable attribute. Uh, it, there, there's no sense that man uh, shares in, the, in that attribute of aseity. We are absolutely dependent uh, on everything outside of ourselves. We we are dependent upon God uh, for every breath that we take. So there's no analogy, and that's why it's called incommunicable. It does not communicate from God to us. Does that make sense? So there there is this vast gulf (coughs) between God and himself and certain of his attributes. Now, there are other attributes that are analogous. Now, again, there is an infinite distance between them, but nevertheless, God... Is a moral being. And so that communicates. We are made in the image of God. And part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that we too share in those moral qualities, knowing right and wrong. Now, God is exalted, Um, He is infinitely above His creation. Uh, There is a vast distinction between the Creator and ourselves in every way. But these attributes of God, both incommunicable and communicable, should be properly emphasized in the teaching of God's word and in the worship of God. That is, when we come together to worship, we should come away with something of the sense of the uh, transcendence of God, that which makes God wholly other from ourselves. But also we know that God draws near and that we should also have a sense of the imminence of God. Worship in spirit and truth is what we read in John chapter 4 verse 24. We, the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. There should be reverence in worship. There should be awe in worship as the book of Hebrews says. The people need to be brought into contact with something of the transcendence of God's being, his glory, his omnipotence, um, his infinite wisdom. But also, we need to see him as a father. There is something relational, personal in our worship of God. That the father is a father to us. The son is an elder brother. The Spirit is a helper, a comforter, uh, a paraclete who is within us and dwells within us. Now, the aseity of God, or sometimes it's called the independence of God, the independence of God is found in the Westminster Standards. For example, in the larger catechism, question seven, you find the phrase that God is in, quote, in and of himself all sufficient in and of himself all sufficient and this is what we saw in exodus chapter 3 that we read i am who i am says god to moses at the burning bush moses says well who am i going to say sent me when i go down to egypt and i tell the people that god is going to deliver them and god says to moses i am who i am i am who i am i will be who i will be now god in addition to being independent is also infinite Uh, god is without finite there as people as human beings are many things you and i cannot do right we cannot do a lot of things how many times have you heard your mother say maybe in a little bit of exasperation when you wanted her attention as a child, and she said, I cannot be in two places at the same time. (laughs) Maybe you've said that yourself. (laughs) That's impossible. But guess what? God can. God can be in more than two places at the same time. And this is what's really interesting. When God is there, he is fully there. So you don't want to think of God as he's partly in China and partly in Africa and partly here in the United States. He is fully God in China, fully God in Africa, fully God here, fully God in Mars, on Mars. So if we do get somebody to Mars, uh, God will be there. God God will be there. And God is not spatially stretched out over the universe. He is omnipresent everywhere. So he can be uh, in two places at the same time. He is. He also um, has an uh, infinite amount of energy. Um, we have only so much energy, only so much strength. I didn't sleep well very, la- last, very well last night, and you saw it this morning, didn't you? <laughs> Turn to Ephesians 1, I said. <laughs> All right, you know, the brain doesn't work quite so well when you're tired and you didn't sleep uh, well. But God is not lacking. Uh, they're, they're, God does not need to uh, plug in and get the battery charged. Um, his his uh, battery does not die out. You and I, we only have so much information. Um, our understanding is, is limited, but God cannot learn. That's not, a, that's not a criticism. Because he already knows all things. There's nothing that God, you can teach God. There's nothing that God does not already know. He, he is not lacking for information or for power. St. Augustine said this He said, Time and space are the servants of God, not his master. Time and space serve the Lord. Time began when God created material things. What is eternity like? We do not know. God is free of all limitations and defects. God has past, present, and future. Uh, God is also immense. He transcends every point of space. Just like I said, he's not spread out over the universe, but he, he is at every point in space uh, there. God is also immutable, or this word means, boys and girls, unchangeable. You and I change. Uh, We we age, uh, but God does not change. Malachi 3, verse 6, God changes not, says the Scripture. God does not improve, and God does not deteriorate. Now, this is in direct contradistinction to the teaching of what is known as the openness of God. In case you've never heard of the openness of God, the openness of God is a kind of a relative modern heresy that teaches that God does not know the future and he learns as he goes, kind of like artificial intelligence, okay? You teach the computer the moves of chess and by lunchtime, it's a chess master, okay? AI technology, it learns as it goes. God does not learn as he goes. he already knows all, all things. Um, God is immutable in his knowledge. His knowledge does not change because he is omniscient. First John chapter 1 verse 5, John tells us God is light. God knows all things. He is truth itself. First Timothy 6:16 six, speaks of God as uncreated light and then in Psalm 60 verse 10, Uh, the psalmist says, in thy light, we see light. That is in the knowledge of God, in the light of his word that God gives us in the scriptures, we have understanding. Now, the immutability of God is not challenged at all by the incarnation because you might want to say, well, wait a minute. If God the son becomes a man, doesn't that mean he changes? No, not at all. Remember that Uh, God, in the Son, is simply adding to his deity our humanity without any sin. He is not changing the divine nature at all. The divine nature does not change at the incarnation. So when Jesus says, who touched me, that's not because the divine nature has shrunk. That's Christ operating out of his human nature. So when the woman at the well touches him, and he says, who touches me? That is Christ in his human nature, recognizing that somebody has touched him in faith and power has gone forth from him. And he is asking, which one of you touched me in faith? Now, in addition to the incommunicable attributes such as the immutability of God, the eternality of God, the infinity of God, the aseity of God, we also know that God as communicable attributes these are things that you could put this way we can relate to them okay it's we it, it's difficult for us to relate to immutability or satiety, but it is possible for us to relate for example to wisdom wisdom what is wisdom well, wisdom is a form of knowledge in which God chooses the best end and the best means to that end God chooses the best end and the best means to that end. This um, The wisdom of God presupposes that God is omniscient. Uh, that may be one of the reasons why Westminster Divines do not list uh, omniscience as an incommunicable attribute is because it's under the heading of wisdom. This is going to be true when we get to love as well. You ever wonder why does your shorter catechism not list love, uh, you know, in in the answer? Well, it's because it's answered in the goodness of God, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So the wisdom of God, um, God's wisdom is seen in creation. We are told in Psalm 8, but the wisdom of God is also realized in the scriptures, in the special revelation. Uh, In fact, the... foolishness of God, God is so wise that the quote-unquote foolishness of God, says Paul, is greater than the wisdom of men. The foolishness of God in the gospel that a Palestinian Jew can be hung on a Roman cross and bring salvation to men everywhere for eternity seems as foolishness to the Greek or also to those Jews who are unbelieving, who are trusting in the works of the law to save them but that is the very wisdom of God uh, in Jesus Christ. Some have proposed a theory why it is that uh, Jews, though they are spread out over many centuries and over many cultures, uh, have been uh, often moved to the top of the socioeconomic ladder. And some have speculated that one is because they are required to study and memorize the wisdom literature of Proverbs and that that gives them wisdom. So maybe, you know, one thing you may want to do, young people, um, if you want to grow wise, is to read the book of Proverbs. You know, there, there's a proverb for every day of the month. If you wanted to, you could read a proverb, and you could go through Proverbs every month. And then when... Tomorrow's May, isn't it? Is it? tomorrow, May? May 1st, tomorrow, there you go. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 1, tomorrow. And, and by the end of May, you can be done. If you read a proverb every day so that's the wisdom of god god also is omnipotent and he is also holy now the hebrew word for holiness is kadosh the greek word is hagios hagios Um, it literally means to cut off or radically separate it is often used in the scriptures of referring to places holy places such as the temple, holy things, maybe the utensils at the temple, holy days such as the Sabbath, holy persons such as the Levites, etc. Israel was to be a holy nation. They were a separate people. Now, most uses of the word for holiness center around the ark and the name of God in the Old Testament. The ark and the name of God have more references to it as holy than anything else. God is infinitely holy. He is exalted. He has an exalted otherness, an exalted separateness. God's being is essentially holy. Some theologians have called holiness uh, the attribute of attributes, in that it holds all the other perfections together. The glue which holds them all together is his holiness. Now, I don't know how that squares with that we shouldn't exalt one attribute above another, but but I'm willing to follow men who are much more proficient in theology than me. God's holiness is self-sufficient. The scriptures ask the question, who is like thee, O Lord? God is self-sufficient in his holiness. God sometimes swears by his own holiness in order to confirm a promise. He swore with an oath that he could not break, that he would give descendants to Abraham. He had Abraham cut the animals into two parts. And then God in a theophany goes through those animal parts, signifying this covenant that If God was not faithful to Abraham and his promise, may God himself be split apart like these animals that had been cut and laid on either side. God's holiness um, is ethically holy. He is separated from all sin and all evil. Habakkuk says that God does not behold evil. God is light, we are told. And in him there is no darkness at all. Dr. Kelly, who I've relied on uh, for this uh, lecture, Dr. Kelly believes it is possible that the lack of ethical holiness in the church is what has allowed secular humanism to gain such control in the culture. Dr. Kelly notes that nature abhors a vacuum. And when the church apostatizes from holiness and from God himself, then it becomes corrupt, and secular humanism then ends up filling the void. Not only is God wise and omnipotent and holy, but he is also infinitely just. He is righteous altogether. God does not just speak of himself as righteous, but he is righteousness. He is righteous. The old, in the Old Testament, the righteousness of God often is expressed in terms of protection of the oppressed or the deliverance of the needy. For example, you have, for example, in Deuteronomy, the promise that the cry of the widow would come up to the ear of God. And if any oppress the widow, a woe to that man, Woe to that man who put a a stumbling stone in front of a blind man because God sees and will bring vengeance uh, upon those who are needy, upon those who persecute the needy and the oppressed. Um, We as Christians need to feel the weightiness of the righteousness of God, not only with regard to, to our own uh, ethical need for the imputed righteousness of jesus christ but also that god's justice would be done in the earth that we would stand uh, in a good cause to use the language of our standards here to do righteousness is a sign of the new birth of the holy spirit people without jesus christ end up lowering god's standards because God's standards condemn themselves and they condemn us. Our righteousness comes from Christ and when you have Christ's righteousness because Christ has fulfilled the demands of the law and he has died according to the penalty of the law and he has imputed the inherent righteousness that he himself has and given it to us so that we have this inherent, uh, his inherent righteousness as our alien righteousness, we do not need to lower the standard of God's righteousness in his law because it has been fulfilled in Christ and we have Christ. And therefore we stand with God's standard, even though we ourselves inherently daily do break that standard. It is still nevertheless the standard of righteousness that we need to keep. One of the things that you need to realize is that the Pharisees were not upholders. They have the reputation of being the upholders of God's law. They really were not. They were lowering God's law. If you look carefully at the Sermon on the Mount, what is Jesus repeatedly doing there? He's repeatedly saying, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, he's saying, you have heard these misconceptions by the Pharisees, by the teachers of the law, that, you know, you love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you that that's wrong. You see, they were lowering the standard of what it means, thou shall not kill. They were saying, well, that only applies to your neighbors that you like, but your enemies, you don't have to worry about that law. And Jesus, so the G- same with adultery, same with marriage. You have heard it said, you know, that um, uh, Jesus said, if you look so much at a, at a woman lasciviously, you you are guilty of committing adultery. And so, you know, the, the Pharisees were not these men upholding the law of God, they were lowering the standard of law. In fact, you know, Jesus points this out. He said, oh yeah, you'll, you'll be a hard nose when it comes to tithing your cumin in your garden. But, you know, you, you neglect the weightier matters of love and justice. So the, the, it's a myth that the Pharisees held a high view of God's law. Uh, they did not. They had a low view of justice and Righteousness. And Jesus was pointing that out, and they didn't like it. And uh, they condemned Jesus on the false charge of blasphemy in order to get rid of him. God is um, also just in that he, the rectitude of God is manifested in his sovereignty over good and evil. You have that classic passage in Genesis where Joseph said, you, my brothers, you meant it for evil when you sold me into slavery. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That is, God's connection with evil is righteous. Even in the allowance of evil, God did it right. William Still has this pithy little quote here that is wonderful. William Still, the Scottish Presbyterian minister of the 20th century said, God handles sin sinlessly. God handles sin sinlessly. He is not the author of evil, but he is sovereign over it. Now, here, as I mentioned earlier, also we see that the Westminster Standards list goodness as a communicable attribute. And you have to ask yourself, why did they not list love like in your shorter catechism, boys and girls? You know, uh, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite and eternal in his wisdom, being, power, justice, holiness, goodness, and truth. Where's love? It's in goodness. The love of God is the subset of the goodness of God. So it's not that they forgot that verse in the Bible that God is love. They're just uh, putting it theologically under the category of God's goodness. God's goodness is the expression of his love. Now, this is important because in our circles, you need to know there are some who, and I think they're wrong about this, and some of these views were held in the former presbytery that I was a part of when I was down in Florida. We had a few guys who believed uh, that God was good to the reprobate, but God did not love the reprobate. And I think that that is contrary to uh, what the Westminster standards are saying. That is, if you hold to the goodness of God's love to the reprobate, you have to hold to the love of God towards the reprobate in his beneficence. Okay? And, And so I don't think you can say, well, God is good to the reprobate, but he does not love them. Well, he may not have a salvific love for them, but he does have a love for them. The, the Bible says that the rich young ruler came to Jesus and Jesus loved him, and yet he still went away. He was not one of God's elect, and yet the scripture says he loved him. Jesus said that God causes the rain and the sunshine, which is a sign of his beneficent love, to fall upon the unrighteousness, on the on the unrighteous as well as the righteous. And And so I think those who want to make that distinction do not understand the theological categories properly that the Westminster standards hold to. One last thing, and we close here, and that is God also is all truth, the veracity of God. God is truth. Uh, He cannot lie. His word is truth. God is not culturally driven. Um, Truth must confront relativism. The mainline church, and many parts, maybe even of evangelicalism now, have been under the influence of relativism. But God, when he speaks, he speaks what is absolutely true. Interestingly, um, the Bible speaks of idolatry or idols as vanity or empty. They are empty heads. And those who worship them will become like them. We become more like God because of his word. His word is truth. And Jesus prayed in John 17, sanctify them by the truth. So that through the truth of God's word, our lives are changed. Our our minds are transformed. The renewing of our minds through the ministry of the word, the ministry of God's truth, makes us more like God himself in truth. Uh, especially the Lord Jesus Christ in his perfect humanity. We'll we'll stop there, and uh, maybe if you have questions, we'll take them afterwards in fellowship time.